The global pandemic changed the way teachers engage with learning technologies. In this podcast, we try to filter out the clutter and noise around technology tools and focus on the essential questions of pedagogy that drive meaningful learning experiences. You're joining Alicia Gallegos-Betters, Michelle Hofter-Thompson, and Pamela Rabin for our podcast series. EdTech. If you didn't know, now you know. Welcome, everyone. I'm super excited today for our special guests. I'd like to start by welcoming back Sharisa Beck from our Curriculum and Instruction Department here at San Diego County Office of Education. And drum roll, please. Deborah Crouch and Brian Camborn. And we will jump right into a conversation, this amazing book that they've written, Made for Learning. Deborah and Brian, talking to us about how you came to write the book together. Well, so I'm going to start with talking a little bit about Sharisa Beck, because Sharisa and I were putting together a conference here in San Diego, and as we kept talking about what would be really great topics to include and what kinds of conversations we wanted people to engage in, we kept coming back to um, the fact that both of us, you know, as, as young teachers learned about conditions of learning and what an impact it made on our careers and, and our, you know, teaching, teaching lives. And, and we really wanted something that we could offer the teachers to think and talk. So, you know, start looking back through all the things that I had and, and realized, you know, most of the articles that I had were a little bit older, you know, and then the whole story was, was out of print. I'm just certainly not sure quite where I got the guts to actually email Brian Camborn and Ask if he had something that he'd written that was, you know, current that we could use. And Brian was so lovely. He said, well, I don't have anything, but if you write something, I'd be more than happy to give you feedback on it. That became an article that we wrote together. Brian, you want to jump in there? Anything you would add to that little happy memory that I have? I got the original request from Pat Eastman, who runs a professional development program called a copy, and she told me she had this uh, presenter who wanted to do a session on the conditions of learning, and would I be prepared to send any updates that I'd written since the whole story to her? And it touched a raw nerve with me because people had been at me for years to update the conditions of learning, and I'd never got around to doing it. So I said, oh, well, I've got some stuff here that is pretty old, but it's still relevant, it's still pertinent, why don't I send you that and you read through that and we'll see what comes out. Deborah did. She read through all the stuff that I sent her and then I got the request for a professional development program they were planning. Deborah wanted to do a, a short paper on how the conditions of learning can be used to frame teaching decisions. And it all started from there. It was my laziness and her insistence that got us started. And then Brian said, well, I've been thinking about updating the whole story. And, you know, what if you talk to Richard Owen, who ended up publishing our book? And so just in thinking about technology and what it's enabled us to do, Brian and I wrote this entire book while we were in Zoom meetings. So we would share screen and share our thinking and we wrote the book completely together through Zoom and it was actually really worked well. It was pretty awesome to have Zoom 
available for that. And uh, I'm an early riser so that I wouldn't disturb my wife during the, the day. I would get up at 4 a.m. my time, which would give me a good three hours with Deborah uh, unbroken. I think that was conducive as well because it fitted in with her timeline. She's a very, very busy lady, but she managed to find uh, a time each day that coincided with my 4 a.m. through 7 a.m. Time swap. And I, I think something that's interesting, it was not the pandemic that caused you to write this virtually. It was your geographical distance. Because I'm in San Diego and Brian is in Australia. Yeah. It, it was interesting that when we started, Richard said, look, we should make this a fairly short book, 96 pages maximum. We soon learned that that wasn't possible. It blew out to how many pages, Richard? We wanted to make sure that we had not just a book around theory, but a book that had enough examples of classroom practice so that teachers could see themselves and begin to see how the conditions really can be so present in all that we do in the classrooms. So can you talk a little bit about your current work with teachers and students and how you see conditions of learning or how they're kind of coming up in the work that you're doing? You know, we spend so much of our professional life in professional developments always focusing on teaching. One of the things I think that's so critical is that we frame teaching as a response to learning so that we're focusing first on kids. Now, we say that, you know, we'll, you'll go in and people say, oh, we're going to focus on kids. we got to look at kids first. But then it's always this immediate leap to teaching. It's that learning to look at kids and think about the decisions that you make about how you're going to go about anything that you do in the classroom is going to affect that learning setting, that learning space that you're creating uh, in your classroom. For example, read aloud, right? I mean, having a read aloud time in your day or, you know, using read aloud as an approach throughout your day. One of the things that many teachers do is they take any book that they're reading and they put it under the document camera and project it. And they'll have kids sitting at their seats, or even if the kids are gathered on the rug, there's something about looking at a screen that is so different than when a teacher reads to you and holds the book themselves. And I know teachers' intentions are so, oh, so the kids can see the book, so they'll be able to engage with it even more. The challenge is that it removes the intimacy of a read aloud experience for kids, that notion, you know, when you think about read aloud and shared reading, those were to bring the lap book experience, you know, the snuggling up with the kid at home into the classroom so that kids are hearing stories and learning language and experiencing just the joys and the, all the kinds of thinking that, that come along with the read aloud. But putting it under a screen doesn't give the same experience. It changes the, the dynamic of the relationship that's being nurtured and built through the read aloud experience. So it's one of those things where the way that we go about doing something, you know, even with the best intentions can sometimes actually bring engagement down. It doesn't mean kids aren't attending. It doesn't mean that they're not like staring at the screen, looking at that. But one of the pieces of engagement that I've always thought was, is, so critical in what Brian talks about when he describes engagement is just the idea that that relationship between the others in the classroom and the learner 
is so crucial. And so anything that we do that affect that relationship is going to in turn impact engagement and then in turn impact all the learning um, that's going on. It really makes me think about ed tech. We talk quite a bit about having students do more creating rather than curating. Mm-hmm. And having these opportunities for kids to take what they've learned and then create something, whatever it may be, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then having that uh, opportunity to either work independently or in groups, like Deborah was saying, um, like in that collaborative kind of environment where that there's a, a consistent interaction, and then having an opportunity to not only give peer feedback and, you know, include that in in feedback from teachers, but also reflecting on the process of creating and not necessarily just in language learning, but in, in all different um, types of learning. It's that whole notion of learners seeing themselves as the doers of the learning behaviors that you talk about and write about regarding engagement. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really affected my views of how learning works was that I read some material by a, a British linguist called Michael Halliday. And you need to know that I was raised on behaviorism through my school, a pre service school years training course. And we were immersed in the so-called scientific theories of behaviorism, and we were expected to put that into practice in our classrooms. Part of the learning that I did was I read very much of Noam Chomsky, the linguist, whose argument was that form precedes function. So when kids are learning to talk, first of all, they pay attention to the form of the language, and then they learn how to use it. And then along comes this British linguist, Michael Halliday, who actually wrote, we learn language, we learn through language, and we learn about language simultaneously. And what he was really saying was that, hey, wait a minute, function precedes form. I did a lot of reading around that, and I I became, I suppose, a, a fan of Michael Halliday because... That notion that we learn language, we learn through language, and we learn about language simultaneously meant that in our classrooms, we had to create opportunities for kids to use language in functional ways. (laughs) They had to use language in ways that enable them to explain. They had to use language in ways that enable them to narrate. They had to use language in ways that enabled them to persuade. And so it meant that I had to look at my classroom practice, my classroom setting, particularly the way that I distributed myself across time in the day. And I had to say, where can I create these opportunities for kids to use the functions of language so that they will ultimately learn the form? It meant that I had to create large blocks of time where kids could engage in activities that involved them in using language with others that they trusted, which meant the teacher had to be a trusted friend 
uh, classroom had to be kind of haven for those kids that was safe. And they had to have a kind of bonded relationship with all their peers as well. So that meant that as a teacher, I had to set about creating that kind of ethos in my classroom. And it was a very different way of using time, using the paraphernalia of teaching like furniture and how you set it up and uh, wall charts. It was a whole completely new refurbishment of the way that I organised classrooms. And so I had to work out ways of helping teachers understand that as well. So it was a long process. It took me a long time. Isn't it surreal being here? I mean, Deborah and I go back and I remember we were conditions of learning fans. And then when we became staff developers, all our work was grounded in. Michelle, you joined the party. And then now here we are sitting in a virtual room with Deborah and Brian together and they've written a book. It's, it's It feels like it's a fairy tale and a very good one. Deborah, I've been wondering, people are virtually learning, they're hybrid learning, returning to the classroom. And I, what I see is just a screaming need for the conditions of learning to be alive and well. And I don't have the deep experience that you've had from going through, you know, writing the book and you've now been out talking to districts and people about the book. And I was wondering if there is a way or a couple ways that your, your understanding or your thinking has changed and it could be because of your, your book writing and, and talking experience or maybe even your experience of trying to apply them in a different context virtually. Well, I think I would say it's, it's probably not changed so much as it's deepened more than anything, you know, this whole, whole virtual world and trying to transition back into being in person has made that whole notion of the learning setting more front and center in so many conversations, thinking about, you know, how we go about doing whatever, making sure that we're slowing down, making sure that we're spending our time on things that are really essential as opposed to all the busy work that goes on. In classrooms, you will still see a lot of the kind of, oh, we got to get back to what was normal um, or what we were doing before when really a lot of the before wasn't what we needed to be doing anyway because we weren't seeing the effects with kids that we wanted because I think that's probably something that's become more firm in my own thinking, if you will, that if we're not seeing the effects with kids, it's because we haven't set up the conditions that that learner happens to need at that moment in time. So I feel more grounded in the conditions than I ever have. And, you know, and in, in the virtual world, I think it really gave us the sense of the universality of those conditions because I got the advantage of being able to work with kids virtually and in, in lessons and just recognizing that some of the same sorts of things that we can do with our, in our technology world, we can do in real life. For example, when I would be on with groups of kids, I would just say, you know, just leave your mute button off as long as it's quiet behind you and helping them learn how to manage themselves and in a, you know, in a Zoom experience. But recognizing that if they've got to go through the whole rigmarole of trying to find your mute button and you're trying to turn it off so that now I can speak, that you lose some of that magic of kids having those responses to text. Um, I have a brilliant example of some little kindergartners who book is on the screen and it's got this, we turn the page and it's a two page spread of this brilliant, beautiful caterpillar. And all the kids had their mute buttons 
off so that I could just hear them. And the moment the picture comes up or the photo comes up on the screen, you hear all of them going, oh, wow. And I, every time I show it to teachers, I say, you know, what I would have missed right there in that moment if they'd all been muted and had to wait for me to say, okay, unmute yourself, right? Or even finding it. So I think, you know, again, it's thinking about how those conditions are, you know, how we're teaching in ways that make those conditions come to life. That's crucial, whether we're in person or whether we're in virtual world. As we go through this, that's what I've been thinking. There has never been a, a time where we needed these more now than ever. You know, so mm-hmm. we look for these times and any times, mm-hmm. but it's just sort of ironic mm-hmm. that happened. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that really had an effect on me when we were writing the book was I wanted to get the message across that, that humans, the human species, us, are literally made for learning. And it was uh, Deborah's brilliant title that uh, captures that. By made for learning, to me, that means if you create the right set of conditions, then you can't help learning. <laughs> learning will occur. It's one of the survival mechanisms of our species. If you think about it, as a species, we are the most dominant species on Earth, and uh, we can't run very fast, we can't jump very high, we haven't got very ferocious teeth or, or weapons, but somehow or other we've mastered, and we are the top predators on uh, thousands and thousands of species that live on Earth. And the reason we can do that is that we evolved with a brain that can construct meaning from symbols. That's what makes us unique. Evolution, somehow or other, shaped our brain so that when we are confronted with symbols, we can make meaning from it. Symbols can either be Uh, language symbols like oral or written language, or they can be sign, or they can be art, or they can be math or anything. But if we want to learn it, as long as the conditions that support what evolution did to us, then we just can't help learning it. We can't switch off. We are literally made for learning. I spent about four decades observing kids learning to talk or learning in schools and uh, time and time again the same sets of conditions were there the same ecological emotional physical conditions were there all working together that made it possible for us to make meaning out of the symbols that we were immersed in or using or trying to use ourselves that's one of the things that I would want I would want teachers to keep in mind that if, if you get the conditions right, if you get the climate right, the ethos of your classroom right, if you get the uh, way you use time and space and and the the resources and the language, if you get all of that right, then you're going to create a learning setting that simulates how kids learn to talk, and learning to talk is probably the most important thing that our species has to do in order for us to maintain our position at the uh, top predator on Earth. Um, We have to have a system where 
kids can't help learning to talk. And that's what's happened to our species. The, the family unit has worked out ways of responding to kids' attempts to understand the language into which they've been born is similar right across the world. Doesn't matter whether you're learning Japanese or, or Persian or, or whatever, the same conditions apply. The family unit is structured so that caregivers respond and react and um, behave in certain ways to the young learners' attempts to master this really abstract system called oral language. It's that notion of we can't help learning if we get the conditions right that I think is really important. Can you talk about the processes also that need to be utilized in order to empower students to learn? The processes were my attempt to explain and understand how some teachers that I worked with over the years really did understand the conditions of learning and could put them into place successfully. And why some teachers who would tell me after I'd been working with them for a while, yes, yes, Brian, I get it. I understand the conditions of learning. I, I really do understand them. But when I observed them in action in their classroom, it became obvious to me that they couldn't. Something stopped them at the last minute. They, they knew the theory, they knew how to talk about it, but once they tried to put it into practice, they reverted or regressed back to the, the old behavioural teacher talk, kids listen kind of teaching. And so I said to myself, I've got to find out what it is that that subset of teachers who successfully put it in place are actually doing that enables them to not only understand the conditions of learning, but to be able to apply them uh, as I intended in ways that ensured that kids would engage and would learn. And so I spent a lot of time observing and analysing what those teachers who successfully put those conditions in place uh, actually did. What were they doing? And I, I wanted to express it in, in teaching terms, teaching language that they could understand. That's where those processes came from. They were the classroom practices that these teachers were constantly putting into place. They were trying to get the kids to internalise. What's that first process we call, Deb? Um, Transformation. Transformation. Um, it, it was important to me to, to understand how kids would take what they'd learned and then turn it into something that they owned themselves. In order to do that, I had to watch what kind of activities they created for kids to do that. And usually it was creating an opportunity for the child to take what had been demonstrated, what they discussed, what they'd been immersed in, and apply it to a new and different situation successfully. So I understood that one of the things that teachers who were doing this successfully 
were doing almost naturally was creating situations where kids could take what they'd been learning and apply it in a new situation. And that was important. Uh, I also observed that these teachers, they promoted discussion, not only between each other, but with oneself. They uh, allowed opportunities for kids to reflect. And if you think about it, reflection is really discussion with yourself. You know, it's like a little bit like a soliloquy. You're thinking about what it is that you're thinking about. (laughs) So it was through that process that the processes that empower learning gradually emerged. And then I tried to put them together in in a way that teachers could understand how to evaluate, how to discuss and reflect, how to create opportunities for kids to transform and so on. Um, you've done it, Deb. Um, how did you go about putting those processes in place in your classrooms? Yeah, I think those processes really do give you a direction as a teacher. You know, sometimes you look at a theory and you're looking at conditions and you're like, okay, well, what's that going to look like when you put it into practice? And, you know, thinking about discussion, you know, how am I going to make sure that kids have lots of time to have conversations in classrooms and opportunities to sit and be in partnerships and and in groups and and opportunities for kids to not replicate what I've demonstrated, but opportunities to transform it, take it on in different ways. Think of, of kids practice, you know, that whole application and employment piece about kids taking it on and just redoing what the teacher did. So I did it, now you go do it. And we go, yay, look, they've, they've learned this. But you're getting that very shallow learning for the moment kind of, of learning. So it's not the learning that I, as, a, as someone who's learned something, can take into another setting and apply it and, and make the decisions that you would have to make in order to take on something in a different setting. And that whole notion of evaluation, I think, is a, is a huge piece, that learning to recognize what you've done and, and the effect of what you've done and, and how that sits alongside that condition of approximation, recognizing for yourself that you're not going to be perfect when you start trying anything, right? And there's so many theories out now. I see echoes of the conditions of learning in. You know, when I, when I hear about growth mindset, I think, oh, yeah, that's right sitting right there. It's, you know, there are several of these conditions that are embedded within that, that theory of learning. I think this model of learning that Brian has spent his entire life putting together, it just gives us a framework for thinking about so many different kinds of experiences for, for kids. Yeah, and for teachers, because these conditions apply to adult learning just the same as they do to kid learning. My hope is that they are universal. Over the years, I've, I've received feedback from people in quite different discipline areas, usually they're academics, but not always, who tell me that they can see how the conditions can be applied to their particular area of expertise. I think the first one I got was from a professor of aeronautical engineering at one of the big companies associated with NASA, you know, getting ready for the space program. And he wrote to me and said, for the first time I realise now how I can better teach my graduate students 
to understand what it is that I'm trying to get them to understand. And I got another one from a, a young man who was the maitre d of the hotel restaurant that his parents owned. And he said, I learned about your conditions of learning and they reflect exactly what it is that happened to me. I started off in my parents' restaurant as a water boy, filling up the glasses of water as people ate and drank. And then I graduated to being a waiter myself. And then my parents promoted me to be head waiter. And I learned all of those skills. And now I'm there to do. And he said, I was immersed. I received lots of demonstrations. I got good feedback uh, or responses. Uh, I was allowed to make mistakes because I had very understanding parents. It really accounts for my success today as day of this very upmarket restaurant, I think, in New York. So I've collected those over the years, and there is a, a kind of universality to them. And my hope would be that in this new area of virtual learning, that the same universality applies. All that's missing is the research to find out how to do it. And I think I've discussed with Deborah before, there's a PhD in someone doing what I did with kids learning in classrooms, with kids learning in virtual situations. We need someone to go along and observe, take field notes, talk, uh, discuss, collect as much naturalistic data as they can, and then sit down and analyze it. And I think you'd find, or I would hope you would find, that the same conditions were applying there. Deborah, you were smiling. Was there something you wanted to add? I was just noticing you're um, thinking about the um, that notion of creating and how important that is for, for thinking about how kids are taking what they're learning and putting it out into the world. I mean, more than ever, this is the timing. Mean, technology just enables so much to, to happen for kids. I you know, was talking with teachers recently. We were talking about how we could take an interactive writing that we had done and you know, take a photo of it, put it into one of the platforms and then having the kids illustrate and draw. And then over, you know, a week, you can collect those so that kids have text that they can read at home. But then how that can also become something you share with parents that is now like, look at what we've done this week, you know? So I said, just the technology, just that you have at your fingertips now is just amazing for how we can support you know, that home and school connection as well to extend kids learning from the day, huge and powerful. We have a responsibility to help the people that we're teaching, whether they're adults or, or kids, kindergarten, preschool, right through to PhD. We have a responsibility to help them understand how learning works. So in very subtle ways, in your interactions with them, you need to provide opportunities to let them understand that learning is about the construction of meaning. And in order to improve our meanings, to, to really solidify the meanings that we construct, we need lots of opportunities to talk with each other, to collaborate with each other, to share with each other. And I think we have a responsibility 
to bring the learners along with us. Many of them will never have experienced this approach to learning before. And uh, I think we owe it to them to, in our ways of interacting with them, to expose them to why we're doing it the way we're doing it. It's like giving the conditions of learning, not as a series of lectures, but as a series of little comments about what it is that's happening in the classroom right now. You know, I want you to do this worksheet because here's how it'll help you learn, rather than do this worksheet and then I'll correct it. Subtle little things like that, I think, are important in the actual interactions that you have with your learners. And I, I found graduate students the most difficult ones to convince because to become a graduate student, you've done 14 years of sit down, shut up and listen to the professor as he, um, or the teacher as they spew knowledge over you. <laughs> You're supposed to pick the best pieces out and regurgitate them later. Helping graduate students understand this approach to learning is more difficult than helping kindergarten kids understand it, <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. I believe that. <laughs> well, I could certainly go on listening and um, just learning with all of you for hours. I'm so grateful that you've taken this time out to spend with us. I want to give a special shout out to Richard Owen and his publishing company supported the making of this book, Made for Learning. Huge appreciation there and a huge appreciation to you, uh, Brian and Deborah, for joining us on our podcast, as well as, of course, Sharissa coming back with us. We really appreciate all of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I agree. I enjoy it. Make sure to pick up a copy of the book, Made for Learning, published by R.C. Owen Publishing. Just visit rcowen.com slash made for learning. That's rcowen.com slash made dash for dash learning. And be sure to dig in with a colleague. If you'd like to join us for future podcasts or catch up on previous episodes, you can go to our podcast website. The short link for that is bit.ly slash edtechnow. So that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash edtechnow, all lowercase letters. Or you can check us out at edtech.innovatesd.org. See you soon. <laughs>